The interviews and discussions in this podcast are opinions only and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. This episode of the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison, is sponsored by Barclay Pierce Capital, a leading Australian corporate advisory and equities trading firm. Focused on your vision, Barclay Pierce specialises in making it a successful reality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Stock Insiders with me, Oriel Morrison. Now, we're going on a slightly different path today with my good friend and regular contributor to this program, Rick Rule. Now, as you would all know, uh, normally Rick and I talk all things commodities, contrarian investing sometimes, and, you know, just good ways to make money in this environment that we're in today. Now, today we're going to do something different. We're going to talk about the psychology of investing why some people win, some people fail. And of course, the end game is how to ensure you win when you're trading and you're investing as much as possible. Rick, Happy New Year. Welcome. Thank you for those salutations uh, too. Thank you for the opportunity to do uh, an interview that will be unusual and I suspect of value to people. Oh, extremely valuable. Now, um, Rick, just before we delve into the, the, the depth of what is trading, tell me about uh, how the first couple of weeks of 2022 has been for you. Uh, been lovely. I'm up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, we have a house here that we've owned for 20 years. Unfortunately, uh, the Canadians took it upon themselves to impose uh, some discriminatory property tax laws against foreigners. So we're selling that condo. Uh, we're living out our remaining time in Vancouver because we love the city. Uh, we've sold the condo and so we'll move back. My experience as an overseas investor is that the first time a society tells you they don't want you, you're well advised to listen. <laughs> and so uh, we are packing up and going away. Oh, that's, that's like a, must have an element of sadness to it. It does have that. I mean, we love the city. It's uh, We've been, we think, good contributors to the city, and the city has been good to us. But the time has come when the voters, at least, have decided in their own xenophobic fashion that they don't want foreigners uh, of any hue to own real estate in Vancouver. So we've uh, taken their advice and we're leaving. Well, you know, that's not the only country around the world that we're seeing that sort of um, that sort of thing happen. So it's, I suppose, in some ways it's not that surprising. But, it, you know, when we're talking about investing, that, that I'm sure if you've held that property for 20 years, you've done pretty well on that one. We've done very well. Uh, and there's a lesson uh, there uh, presupposing the direction of our interview. You know, many people uh, believe that uh, political risk comes in emerging and frontier markets where they see images of violence on television. The truth is that the most dangerous government the most dangerous electorates in the world are, the, are the, those that are the closest to you. Money that's stolen from you by Caucasian people in English, according to the rule of law, is just as gone uh, as money or opportunity that's stolen from you in more traditional senses in emerging and frontier markets. So since we're on the psychology of investing, I think one of the lessons around our own experience with property in Vancouver or mineral rights in California is that political risk is where you find it. Mm. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Correct. Political risk is everywhere. I think that's a really, really important lesson and, and very well said. Now, now, Rick, 
we've talked over the last few months, we, we talk every four weeks uh, approximately, of course, and we talk a lot about uh, what you've done over the years and, and some of your winning strategies. Now, a number of times in our conversations, you've talked about how some of those strategies have taken years to come to fruition. They haven't happened in days. They certainly haven't happened in months or hours. They've taken years. Um, that, I think, is an incredible lesson in itself because we all know that investing decisions are directly linked to emotion. Warren Buffett, a fairly successful investor, <laughs> suggests that the eighth wonder of the world and the first wonder of the financial world is compounding. Uh, a business, as an example, that can uh, generate a 15% return on capital employed uh, and can grow by 15%. That is to say that they can employ the 15% that they earn, reinvesting and growing that at 15% generates over five or six years an absolutely stunning internal rate of return. But to enjoy it, the investor must, of course, own it for five or six years. The single greatest investment flaw, if I found one among educated investors, is the fact that they won't let time take its course. Buffett, again, teaches that the ideal holding period is forever. Uh, I've never been fortunate enough, fortunate enough to find a stock that has justified that holding period. But I certainly understand that if you own a good business, uh, its virtues only compound over time. And if you sell it, two bad things happen. The first is that you pay capital gains tax, depending on the jurisdiction that you live in. And the second is that you redeploy money that you had deployed intelligently in a substandard fashion. So when we're talking about emotions, um, patience is obviously one of them. If we're talking about time and the power of compounding and, and leaving an investment alone for a period of time, again, that comes down to emotions. That comes down to patient, whether you can be patient enough and whether you can bear the risk or, or the risk that you perceive there to be with any and each individual investment decision. I think that's right. Uh, another fairly well-known uh, investor, Jimmy Rogers, uh, told me once that his uh, best investment attribute was his willingness to do nothing if there was nothing to do. He described a visual of sitting in an empty room in the quarter, reading a book, doing nothing, and he said, once every two or three years, for some reason, Mr. Market walks into the room with a great big bag of money, puts it in the middle of the room and leaves. And Jimmy said his job was to recognize the fact that Mr. Market walked in with a great big bag of money, get up from his corner, walk to the middle of the room, pick it up, drag it back into the corner and spend another two or three years doing nothing. That's a very colorful way of saying when there are opportunities where the potential rewards seem disproportionate relative to the potential risk, that you go in those circumstances uh, very aggressively. When there are circumstances where the opportunities don't set your skill sets, pardon me, don't serve your skill sets uh, or don't uh, serve the type of opportunities that you might need, uh, the right response when there's nothing to do is to do nothing, which is very difficult for a lot of people, myself included. So how, how do you know then, Rick, when to sell? So with all of that that we've been talking about, you know, patience is key, long-term investing, if you, can't, if you don't have to sell, don't. Do nothing if there is nothing to be done. What about 
just ticking that box. I need to, I, I want to, as an active investor, move my money around. So when do I know that it is time to sell? Well, the first time you sell is when you realize that you've made a mistake. Uh, <laughs> That's a good if, time. <laughs> if you have bought a company based on the expectation that some positive change is imminent, uh, and then it becomes apparent to you that the change that you hoped was going to occur isn't going to occur, you must sell. Many exploration speculators, as an example, might buy a company because of an impending drill hole. And their hope is that the drill hole will prove the third dimension in a deposit. Inexplicably, when that drill hole comes in uh, and doesn't confirm the third dimension of a deposit, if the stock has declined from a dollar to 75 cents or 65 cents, many people refuse to sell. Really, truly inexplicable behavior. If the reason to own a stock disappears, the stock should disappear too, irrespective of price. I know that the question that you were asking was about selling stocks to the upside. But the first test to be a successful speculator and investor is to admit that you've made a mistake uh, and sell a stock, even if you lose money, uh, to limit your downside. What I try to do uh, when I buy uh, a stock is I try to take some cursory notes about why I bought it, uh, what my expectations are uh, in terms of how its fortunes might change, what the expected duration of my holding uh, might be, and what expectations I have for, for reward out of it. You know, an example might be I'm buying uh the large oil stocks right now, because they're still somewhat out of favor. My belief is that their pricing, at least in this interest rate environment, discounts $45 oil while oil is selling for 70 and the natural gas price in the US at $5 uh, is discounted in these companies' free cash flow as their oil was selling it to $2.50. So I personally believe that a portfolio of large high quality oil companies can generate a 5% dividend yield for me, which will increase at 15% compounded for three years. And I personally believe that a well-constructed portfolio of oil stocks, in addition to generating a 5% current yield, uh, will uh, likely uh, double in price uh, over the three to five year time frame. If during my holding period, the oil price were to decline precipitously, as an example. Uh, some of my thesis might be in danger of not coming true, and I would have to revisit my thesis. Uh, similarly, if the oil stocks returned to favor, uh, and rather than doubling over the uh, three to five year time frame, they doubled within a year. In other words, if my upside expectation was met sooner, I'd have to consider selling sooner. So the way that I answer that question is when I buy a stock, I try and envision the circumstances that would cause me to sell it. What expectations do I have? What are the probabilities of those expectations being met? What sort of quantum do I hope to receive as a consequence of my expectation being met? And over what time frame? Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that when you are investing and investing your own very hard earned money into stocks and you're doing it yourself, you have to be prepared to put in the work. I mean, the, the, the number of questions that you just said that you need to answer means that you need to do a significant amount of work before you put your money into any individual stock. How true is that? You know, I've, I've seen people who have 
you know, gone out to buy a refrigerator or something, and they've consulted consumer reports and they've done hours worth of research on a thousand dollar purchase. And with regards to a $10,000 or $20,000 investment in securities, the due diligence seems to be got a hunch, bet a bunch. Yes. Uh, it, it's really inexplicable to me. As you know, Oriel, one of the services that I offer uh, subscribers to channels like yours are portfolio evaluations, uh, where uh, if people send me in their securities, uh, I rank them one to 10, at least their natural resources securities. And one of the things that struck me is the number of portfolios that I see with 45 or 50 stock selections. And so sometimes I email people back and I ask them uh, how comfortable they are with that number of securities. And invariably, I get the response from them that uh, diversification for them is a risk management tool. I would suggest that diversification in that fa in that fashion is, is a... a risk maximizing tool. Uh, if you own 45 positions that you don't know anything about, uh, I would suggest that that's a lot riskier than 10 positions that you know well. Mm -hmm. And so I suggest to everyone who cares about my suggestions that mm -hmm. the number of stocks in a portfolio should be consistent with the number of hours per month that you tend to spend researching the stocks in your portfolio. And by researching the stocks, I don't mean reading inflammatory headlines in the financial press. Mm. I mean reading annual reports, reading quarterly reports, reading analyst reports, uh, that type of thing. Mm. If people would own a, a number of securities which corresponds to the numbers of hours per month that they're willing to spend understanding uh, their securities, their portfolio performance would be measurably better. So. It comes down to the work. Let me let me ask you what, what sounds like a very obvious question, but I don't think psychologically it, it necessarily is. Is it harder to sell a winning trade or a losing trade? Probably harder for me to sell a winning trade. Uh, I'm, I'm not one of those that has things like fear of missing out. Uh, I'm also, having speculated for 45 years, if I make a mistake, it's not the first mistake I've ever made. So I don't have that ego involvement. Uh, in a trade. I have a hard, fast belief that if the reasons to own a stock disappear, the stock has to disappear too, irrespective of price. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, a, you know, when you, when you are talking about the psychology of investing, you're a strong investor. You've been doing it for a number of years. You have discipline. And I think not everybody that is training is trading rather necessarily has that amount of discipline. And, and I know from pre, from personal experience watching the people that I know trade when they're in a losing trade, it's very difficult for them to psychologically get to the point where they can let it go because the decision that they're making is what if I leave it for another day or another week or another month? Will I recover the lost ground that I've seen? You know, I make a very good point. I've had probably a thousand investors in my career when we've talked about a losing trade in their portfolio say, well, I'm going to wait till I break even. Yeah. Well, why would you break even? Uh, if, if the attribute of the company, which would cause it to uh, gain value has gone, uh, why would it go back to break even? Uh, uh, an interesting thing I have when I discuss people's portfolios with them, uh, 
you know, let's, I don't know, what's a, let's say that somebody owns amalgamated aardvark or something. <laughs> uh, and they say, well, uh, Rick, what do you think of amalgamated aardvark? I normally say, well, before this conversation, frankly, I was blissfully unaware of the existence of amalgamated aardvark. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of it? And they say, well, I hate it. It's fallen in price. And I say, well, if you hate it, why do you still own it? Oh, well, I can't sell it. Oh, why can't you sell it? Well, I bought it for $4 and it's at 50 cents. And if I sell it, I'll lose $3 and 50 cents. And then I need to, as gently as I can say, no, in fact, you've already lost the $3 and 50 cents. The question is, when will you recognize it? Mm. And what will you do with the 50 cents that's remaining? If the stock has fallen from $4 to 50 cents, um, you don't have a hold anymore. You have a buy or sell. So if you don't want to sell it, why don't you buy some more? Obviously, it represents better value at 50 cents than it did at $4, doesn't it? Uh, and when you force the question in that fashion, you force somebody to come to grips with the psychology of owning stocks rather than merely the economics of owning stocks, which is important. How many times in that situation would the person that you're speaking to then buy, then add to that position? Almost never. Almost never. Uh, I've done it from time to time. I'll tell you a, a great story, Oriel, which I may have told you before. Mm. Uh, in 1998, I remember being out at Kalgoorlie at Diggers and Dealers, uh, <laughs> searching the end of the world for bargains. My apologies <laughs> to Western Australians for calling Kalgoorlie the end of the earth. But at any rate, I remember being very interested in the Iranian business because everybody else hated it, because nobody else cared. And in 1998 in Kalgoorlie, I ran into John Borshoff, uh, who was then champion of Paladin which had a $1.5 million Australian market cap, an unknown company in a hated commodity with an absolutely passionate driven human being. Mm. So uh, after not too much discussion, uh, I did a 10 cent a share financing for him, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, with a attached option at 15 cents. And for my genius, I was rewarded uh, with the stock going from 10 cents to 9 cents to 8 cents to 7 cents to 6 cents. Suffice it to say, a year into the investment, uh, my 10 cent piece of paper was trading hands for a penny, meaning I was down 90%. I revisited my thesis, as one must do when one's performance and one's faith is tested like that, and found, frankly, to my surprise, that my thesis was very much intact and that I still believed I was right and I still believed the market was wrong. And I was able to buy some more stock at a penny and a half. I didn't get any a penny. Uh, and six short late years later, that stock was trading for $10 a share. Wow. It's a, it's a wonderful lesson. Wow. Because the, sim the simple fact that a stock went down in price doesn't make it worth less money. The, the truth is that uh, Paladin was substantially more attractive at a penny and a half a share than it had been at 10 cents. And I liked it at 10 cents. If you like something at 10 cents, you better love it at a penny. It's important to test those premises. And sometimes when you do that, you're right. Uh, another thing I'd like to point out to you, Oriel, in terms of speculative stocks. Um, first of all, most of the 10 baggers or 20 baggers or 30 baggers that I've enjoyed in my career have taken five or six years uh, for that price escalation to occur. Mm. And almost all of them have fallen in price by 50% or more 
during some part of the period of time that I held them, which is to say you buy a stock at a dollar, it goes to $3, it falls to $2, it goes to $4, it falls to $1.50. Uh, there aren't these psychologically rewarding stair steps to heaven very often. And so you have to have, first of all, the willingness to allow time to be on your side. And you also have to have the stomach to endure volatility. Uh, a great uh, example of that in a stock that everybody has thought has been a one decision stock uh, has, of course, been Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway in the 50 some odd years that he has been the steward of Berkshire Hathaway, it's fallen by 50% or more over 18 month periods of time, four times. Now, if you look at a 50 or 60 year chart of Berkshire Hathaway, the truth is that those 50% declines relative to the whole chart aren't even visible. They were terrifying to live through, but the truth is uh, over the fullness of time, they didn't matter. The same circumstance uh, would confront you if you looked at the Apple computer chart, uh, you know, today's current darling. If you look back at that stock chart over 40 years, uh, probably four or five times in its history, it fell by 50% or more, once with a fairly close brush of insolvency. The uh, ability that you have to obtain multi-baggers in your portfolio requires that you allow the virtues of the company to be uh, magnified by compounding and that you have uh, both the psychological and the financial staying power to weather the volatility that you will certainly encounter during the period of time that you hold the stock. Is that, would that be your number one rule of investing? If I said to you, Rick, give me your number one I suppose, uh, uh, support that the traders out there that are listing, the investors out there that are listing that can take away and say, you know what, if there is one thing I can change and be a better investor, this is the one thing that I would take away from this conversation. I would say that the most important thing to take away has to do with focused work. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that money is made in securities investing by understanding what a company is worth before you pay too much attention to what it's selling for. People pay slavish attention to the share quote, but the share quote is irrelevant information if you don't have some opinion as to value. Money is made on the delta between the price and the value. Then money is made on management team's ability to compound that value over time. You having the ability to perceive it and you having the psychological and financial staying power to enjoy it. When somebody says to me, amalgamated aardvark is selling for a dollar a share Australian, uh, I always say to them, oh, that's interesting. What is it worth? Because money is made on the delta between price and value, and then the delta between the price you paid and the value, not the price, the value that the stock achieves over time. So having the ability to formulate an opinion uh, as to value is extremely important. The other lesson for resource investors, particularly Oriel, is that you are either going to be a contrarian or you're going to be a victim. Mm -hmm. uh, the truth is in capital intensive cyclical businesses, 10 baggers happen because you buy out of, out of favor sectors before they return to favor. And that's very difficult to do. 
I remember three years ago talking to international audiences about the fact that the uranium price had to go up and uranium stocks were pathologically cheap and nobody cared. They wanted to talk about the sectors that were currently hot. Now that the uranium price has doubled uh, and the shares of uranium juniors is up by 300%, meaning that the uranium stocks are relatively less attractive, everybody wants to know about them. Uh, I believe, frankly, that uranium and the uranium stocks have further to go from here. But I also believe the easy money has been made. Making money in capital-intensive cyclical businesses means that you have to be a contrarian. You have to buy things cheap when you're out of favor. And when they return to favor, when you're feeling really smart, you have to remember to sell. Mm, I think that's uh, 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 the reason why we talk to you, Rick Rule. In fact, today's conversation <laughs> brings it all to a head. Um, letting us uh, tap into your expertise and your many years of investing has just been a wonderful experience, Rick. So thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us about the psychology of investing because I'm sure I have zero doubt that this conversation for anybody that's listening to this podcast is going to make a huge difference in their in their investment lives. Thank you. Well, Oriel, if any of your subscribers are interested in a less esoteric discussion, uh, I welcome them to visit my website, ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Enter your natural resource portfolio there. Please no crypto. Please no tech stocks. Please no pot stocks. Uh, I'll rank them one to 10 and I'll comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. Once again, ruleinvestmentmedia.com. Enter your natural resource stocks and I will be, uh, rank them. No obligations. That, that is an incredible incredibly generous offer um rick for all of our listeners uh down here and of course they're not just in australia they're everywhere in the world so once again rick thank you so much for your time have a wonderful day and we will catch up again in around about four weeks or so so we'll see you then always a pleasure and i hope you're feeling better then thank you so much rick and of course thank you to all of uh, our listeners today thanks for everyone who's joined us join us next week for a brand new episode of stock insiders we'll see you then This episode of the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison, was sponsored by Barclay Pierce Capital, Australia's leading corporate advisory and equities trading firm. Barclay Pierce Capital provides specialised corporate advisory and equities trading services to privately owned businesses, small to medium-sized public and ASX-listed companies.